A quick note before the episode today. This episode is being released on the morning of November 3rd, 2020. If you're listening to this, please make sure that you vote today. We need as many votes and voices as possible to ensure the health of our great democracy. Thanks. Welcome to episode 7 of the Atlanta Jazz Notes podcast, where we profile the many amazing people who make up the Atlanta jazz scene. I'm your host, Matt Miller. This week, I had the chance to interview the amazing Sam Skelton. Sam is the first call woodwind player in Atlanta and beyond. His skills on saxophone, clarinet, and flute, and all-around musicianship have led to recording sessions with a diverse array of artists, ranging from Elton John, trumpeter Joe Granston, Matchbox 20, and the Ohio Players. He has performed with the London Symphony Orchestra, the Atlanta Symphony, the Atlanta Pops, the Peachtree Pops, the Atlanta Ballet Orchestra, the Cobb Symphony Orchestra, and many others. In addition to recordings with pop, jazz, and classical artists, Sam has been highly active in the studio recording world, recording for TV and radio and playing countless shows in the pit orchestras at venues like the Fox Theater and many others. Sam is currently director of jazz studies and lecturer in saxophone at Kennesaw State University. He served as professor of saxophone at Georgia State University from 1991 to 2004 and was jazz ensemble director at Georgia Tech from 2002 to 2004 and artist in residence at the University of Georgia Jazz Department. In this interview, Sam discusses his early years in Conyers, Georgia, learning to play jazz and classical saxophone, his approach to doubling on flute and clarinet, learning on the gig, his approach to teaching at the university level, especially during the pandemic, and much more. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did putting it together. Yeah, so thank you so much, first of all, for being here. I really appreciate it. And I see you're somewhat, you're at the top of my list to interview um, for this podcast project that I've been working on. Um, as you know, and the, the goal is to kind of shed light on, you know, people, people who live in Atlanta who are obviously have careers that span way beyond Atlanta, but people I thought were really important in the jazz world. So I thought of you. Well, um, I'm flattered. Thank you. Well, no, seriously. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, and this is, I think, I think you're the first saxophonist or the first, you know, woodwind person I've interviewed and that that's fitting because, um, yeah, I just think of you as kind of the, is, is the woodwind guy in Atlanta, um, and certainly beyond that too. So very kind. I, I, it means a lot. Yeah. Um, well, that, it definitely is true. And I, I'm just, I guess, I guess we can start wherever you want, but I, I'm curious about your background. I know you're from the Atlanta area. Are you from Conyers? I'm from Conyers. Uh, I was born in um, East Point, in South Fulton Hospital. Uh, and then my dad was with Chrysler at the time. So we bounced around a little bit. So we went from Decatur to Chattanooga. And then he got transferred back to the Atlanta area. And then I was pretty much born and raised from kindergarten through high school in Conyers. Okay. <clears throat> and then uh, I went to Georgia State for my undergrad and got a degree in jazz studies. Uh, and then went from there immediately to Boston University, where I was starting a master's in classical saxophone and music education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that point, it just... Uh, my saxophone teacher was going to leave to go to another school, and he was kind of the only reason I was there. So I just decided to come back home and start a career and play in the saxophone. So got it. Okay, um, and that—that's is it. Kenneth Rednoff, Rednofsky, right? Rednofsky, yes. Yeah, which I don't—I don't know his—I don't know him as well as I probably should as a saxophonist, but I just know the name. And know, you know, extraordinarily underrated. Um, he was one of um, Joe Allard's last students. Um, and uh, he's from Texas, uh, and um, just probably the most musical 
saxophonist I've ever heard in my life. I mean, we would literally spend an entire hour lesson on three notes. Really? Because he has this philosophy that he can articulate the same note like 80 different ways and can actually prove it to you. It's phenomenal the amount of musicality this man has. It's just unbelievable. Wow. And I know, I mean, I, I was curious, I, I was wondering how long it would take to really nerd out on saxophone stuff or woodwind stuff, but like, I guess we're, all, we're there. So let's go there. I mean, is the Joe, was, was he, the Joe Allard stuff, was that something that was really explicitly talked about in your lessons? Um, so I know saxophonists are always kind of obsessed with his teachings and stuff like that. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, my first three, well, my first two saxophone teachers were like the complete opposite of Ken. They're real hard, you know, just old school, you know, just beat you over the head. And like, my first saxophone teacher never complimented me until the day he died, uh, where Marcus Prentup and I were both in his um, hospital room. And he said to both of us, he goes, I give you the keys to the kingdom because he was a Pentecostal bishop at the time. Uh, but prior to that, all you got out of him was, that's coming. I mean, that, that's... That was gold if you got that. And so I was used to just being beat down all the time. And so literally uh, Ken looked at me, he goes, and I know he said this to all his students, I, I don't take it to heart, by, except for the, the method behind what he said. He goes, you're the greatest saxophone player I've ever heard and you're gonna be just fine. Mm -hmm. uh, because he could instantly see that I was drawing back. You know, and I wasn't used to someone actually complimenting me. Um, and he just immediately put me at ease and just filled me with such great pedagogy. That's really what I got out of him more than anything, was just how to teach and how to uh, to explore different methods of solving a problem because each student is different. Um, so he insisted that we keep a journal of everything that he said and then give him a copy of that so when he wrote his book he would have all of his little quotations um, that he liked to use. Um, a very colorful man, um, just like I said, a phenomenal, phenomenal musician. Uh, and uh, I just got a wealth of information out of them from one semester because I, I left after one semester. I just really was homesick. So, mm -hmm. wow, that's so interesting. And, and I, I mean, I, uh, that's something that I was struck by you when I first heard you play and first met you and first knew about you was like that your ability to kind of jump between these different worlds. There's so few saxophone players who play beautifully classically, who play in that in that realm, and then also can play so amazingly in the jazz realm too. How do you? How do you approach that? Or was that something that came naturally or something you obviously oh, well, at? I sincerely appreciate that. My, I got lucky. I have, we have one, had one musician in the family. That was my maternal grandfather. Um, he was a trumpet player in the Wani Heston Orchestra in Atlanta in the 1930s. He played professionally from like 29 to 34. Uh, I actually have his ledger somewhere of, of the amount of money he made per gig. It's hilarious. Like I drove 120 miles and made $5, that kind of stuff. <laughs> But uh, so he and he was a civil engineer for the state of Georgia. So um, when he went to work for the de Department of Transportation, he put his trumpet under the bed and it never saw the light of day unless I happened to come over and visit. And so he kind of taught me how to improvise and how to you know be creative around tunes before I could even read. Um, so I always had that interest in jazz. But my approach to, to the saxophone is, is the same with flute and clarinet. You've got to approach it from the tangible side of things, the written music. What's going to create, uh, you know, the technician in you, the musician in you. Um, so even my students that come in, you know, as a jazz major, um, they're going to have to play classical saxophone because it's 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 right there for you to become a better saxophonist. All you have to do is practice it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just and I just love the literature. I think it's I think it's just beautiful stuff. And so I don't think it's anything that that uh, I can't really call myself a jazz musician. I'm certainly not making a living playing classical saxophone, but I am a, I'm a saxophone player. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think that's the right way to approach the instrument so that you can get the full potential 
uh, of you know that that conservatory style of, of discipline of, of playing written music and working on your technique and I don't change embouchures when I go between classical and jazz it's one embouchure I have a lot of students that have a hard time accepting that but um, it's just if it's a good if it's a good embouchure it's going to work regardless of what you're doing and 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 there are plenty of colleagues of mine that use a sling embouchure there's plenty of colleagues that, that do just the opposite I did what Ken taught me to do which was to play on my face and not on my lips so my entire lip goes in I'm playing right on the right past the red of my lip and regardless of what I'm doing classical or jazz, that's what it is. Interesting. Uh, and I think that's probably saved me a lot of wear and tear on this joint here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I, there's wonderful examples of that. I mean, train was like that train had a very proper, um, non-flexible armature. And there's a great video of him playing Hackensack with Getz and Oscar Peterson yeah. and to watch the, gets his job just like moving all over his face and train is just perfectly solid and it's just incredible to hear how that actually solidifies the tone i mean gets had an amazing sound it was so warm and luscious and trains was so pointed and forward and i think that it really has to do with the efficiency of the embouchure. Mm-hmm. that's i've seen that video and that's i've seen yeah gets his jaw it's shocking because they do this close-up so you just see it really jutting and back and forth and yeah um, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if the, if the Kenneth Radnowski thing, if that was a Joe Allard thing. Cause I know that Joe Allard was so famous for having classical and, and jazz students just, just knocking down his door kind of thing. Exactly. He, cause he taught the saxophone, you know, it wasn't, you're, you weren't there to necessarily learn literature. You were there to learn how to play the saxophone and whatever you chose to do with it when you left the studio was up to you. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that he leaves behind an amazing legacy of, of players. Mm-hmm. So, so you're back. So back at back in Conyers, or oh, I guess even even going back a little bit before college, like growing up there, were you hearing? You're obviously hearing it from family members, some jazz music in the house, and was it a party? Not life? in, not in, not in the house that I grew up in. My, I'm an only child. My parents um, liked music, but they weren't. I mean, it wasn't something that was always on in the house. Um, my mother was a Neil Diamond and Willie Nelson aficionado, and my dad didn't really have anything to listen to, so. If I was listening to music in the car or if we were going somewhere, it was going to be either Neil Diamond or Willie Nelson. So I, you want to know about Hot August Night? I got you. Um, but uh, so the, the jazz I got exposed to is actually um, the first time I went to Allstate Jazz in 10th grade. I met a guy who was the lead tenor player in the band named Brett Young, who happened to study with my teacher. He lived in uh, Tacoa, but he would come down to take private lessons from my first teacher, David Hudson. And... Um, so we met uh, at Allstate and he just just took it upon himself to make all these tapes of Dexter Gordon and Wardell Gray and just gave them to me and said, here, you need to listen to this and learn how to play. I'm like, OK. And so that was really my first exposure. And I, and I never looked back. Uh, and then also bear in mind that Marcus Pernup and I grew up together. We went to the same high school and everything. And so every evening he was at my house and we were practicing together. So um, yeah. that was a huge uh, plus to have. I, was talking, I think I was talking to Kevin about that, Kevin Bales about that, because he was he was around with you guys. As, well, not probably later, I'm sure, but he was talking about how you guys had this connection, you and uh, Marcus Printup, and that you were just progressing like leaps and bounds because you were kind of you were working together, and it was just this kind of really you know symbiotic relationship kind of thing. Yeah, when I first met Kevin, I was a senior in high school, and uh, I only knew him as a trumpet player. I didn't know he played piano, mm-hmm. uh, and so he wanted to start this band. Uh, that we rehearsed at North Druid Hills Methodist Church off of North Druid Hills Road. And uh, so every Sunday we'd go and and uh, work on Jeff Warber tunes and you know, play little MLK festivals and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, Kevin's really p- probably my oldest Atlanta musician colleague. 
Um, mm-hmm. We've known each other forever and ever. And of course, he and Kevin, I mean, he and Marcus and a bunch of other folks split from Georgia State and went down to UNF to do their, to finish their degrees. Um, and I, I was just too far along that I would lose so many credits. I'm just like, nah, I just need to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so Got that's kind of where that came. Yeah. In terms of, uh, in terms of playing, I mean, people who know your music know this, but like playing all the different instruments, playing clarinet and flute, not just a little, I mean, at a very, very, very high level. How do you, how do you do that? How, how did you approach that? Were you playing them in high school? Were you playing all, were you always playing all the instruments? No, I, I played a, a teeny tiny bit of clarinet, a uh, fake clarinet in the middle register where it felt like a saxophone um, for one piece that we did. It was called at a Dixieland jazz funeral for, you know, clarinet solo in, in middle school band. So my, my uh, band director, who was also my saxophone teacher just said, you know, let's have you play clarinet on that. And so I did. And then I really just kind of put it back in the case. And it wasn't until I got to college where I got real lucky with my saxophone teacher uh, through high school and college. He was, he, his teaching methods were harsh, um, but real. And so he's literally the first tune he had me learn was Havana Gila. He goes, you can be the greatest saxophone player in the world if, if, if you want. He goes, but if you want to work, you need to learn how to play clarinet and flute. And so I'm like, okay. Um, so I started approaching it that way. And, and I remember my first year playing in the business was almost 90% just Orthodox Jewish clarinet music, you know, just, being in the in the in traditional temples, you know, playing for the ketubah signing and, and and all that good stuff, and you know, separated dancing in the in dance floor, men on one side, women on the other, and so that kind of got my clarinet chops in shape. And then um, flute, I just you know, kind of approached it the same way, uh, but it was a trial by fire because I was getting hired to play shows, and so I was having to get get stuff moving real fast. Sure, so, and, and that's something that I really stress on all my students. Um, and there was a generation after me that they didn't focus on doubles. So there's this gap between guys my age, I'm 52, and then guys that are in their 30s uh, and, and younger that they're, they really didn't want to work on doubles at all. They just wanted to play jazz. And so I'm like, that's great. I mean, I, I, my heart is in jazz, but you know, we have to be real and we have to make a living. And music school is a vocational school. So these are the tools you need so that when you leave, the day that you leave school is the same as the day before you left school. You're still going to be out and go get a gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was impressed so hard upon me. And that's one of the things that I really try to pay forward is get those doubles under your fingers. So. Oh, sure. And that's whenever I, I don't need to even ask them when I see a student of yours, a former student, it just, they can do all those things. So yeah, it's always, it's definitely a testament to your teaching style. And, you know, and it's so important. That's something that I've always regretted. Not, you know, I can play them, but not at the level I should. And it's always like a little, it's just a weakness, you know? And so I'm certainly of that younger generation who was just like, oh, you know, saxophone 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 you know loving that so it was something i'm looking to improve now so yeah just it's a work in progress kids ask me how do i become a better saxophone player i'm like play the clarinet it helps so much yeah giving instrument there is i mean you can't get away with anything on it so and the same with the flute just being aware of the octaves not having not having any kind of you know help with an octave key or something like that so yeah i yeah absolutely um i was going to ask you so so we've gotten through, you know, college and, and, and graduate school. Um, you were here. How did you, I mean, what were some of your first really kind of important gigs? I know, I mean, I'm always coming in from a jazz perspective. You obviously have so many different, was there any, any really important formative gigs that were your first professional things that were really important to you? Uh, yeah, I would say shows. Uh, yeah. You know, I started playing uh, at the Alliance when I was 17. 
uh, I was subbing for my teacher at the Alliance, um, had no business being there. Boy, did I get my butt shoot out. Um, but uh, learned a lot. Um, and so did just, you know, a, a sub gig here and there until really after I graduated Georgia State and came back from Boston, I, uh, I just instantly started playing the shows. And that was back when there were still six summer stock shows a year, a summer. Plus, you could count on another six throughout the course of the year. So there, you know, there was good work and it went on for a long, long, long time. Uh, and those to me were the most important because they really helped me hone my skills on my instruments. Um, it's just, uh, for me, it was invaluable to be able to really you know, sit in this pit with these incredible, you know, classical players that only play flute or only play clarinet. And then there's a couple other chairs that have doubles on it. And I was really striving to sound like someone who only played clarinet or only played flute. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, played a few world premieres of, of some Atlanta composers, which kind of got me into a little different circle um, with some composers. But uh, yeah, those were those were my early days of just being in the theater and then playing in wedding bands, you know, like mm -hmm. everybody else did. Sure. Uh, and, and so you weren't and you weren't studying. You didn't study, um, if I got this right, on clarinet or flute with a teacher. Just with my saxophone teacher, who happened to be an amazing doubler. So. Got it. Got it. Cool. Um, and that work, how has that changed over the years? How's the, the um, I know that I'm sure that the pit work has, has lessened over, the, I, I assume it has in the last decades. Are there fewer opportunities yeah. to play that, that music? Yeah, we had um, the biggest theater company in town was a company called Theater of the, uh, theater, theater of the Stars. Um, and that was run by uh, the Manos family, um, Chris and Nick Manos. And they were just staples and legends of the Atlanta theater scene. And it just, for whatever reason, started losing money and they just couldn't keep it afloat. But it was after 60 years. Um, and so we went from six summer shows, you know, to nothing. Um, and then the only other theater company, the only other big theater company that was doing national tours was Atlanta Broadway series. And so you get a, I would get a call for those when they had a, a local orchestra, but more often than not, those shows were coming in self-contained. So the work really dried up fast, but um, fortunately we had the Atlanta Lyric Theater, really because Theater of the Stars went away, the Atlanta Lyric Theater was really able to, to ramp up their stuff. And then when their executive producer left to form City Springs Theater, they're committed to using only live orchestra, uh, six to eight shows a year. So we were in the middle of doing A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder when COVID hit. And so that brought everything to a screeching halt. Um, so I still think that once we get back, because of companies like Lyric and, and, and uh, Atlanta Broadway series and uh, City Springs, we've got a, a fair amount of, of pit work that we can still do. Mm -hmm. And um, I was gonna ask you a question about that. So the COVID thing, we were talking about that before when the call was gonna interrupt it for a second, like um, that's obviously had a profound effect on your performing career yes. in the last year. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, gosh, it was kind of a, I don't wanna say it was a blessing in disguise, but it really did put me into a different, headspace and a different mode of making music and it, as well as most everybody else that you know if you want to continue to generate content well you're going to have to do it from home you're going to have to do it with your own home recording rig so you know i updated all of that and did more recording work this past summer than i did all of last year um so i mean i played on a spot for Ellen. I played on a spot for HBO. I played on five different albums uh, of just really incredible original material. Um, and so it, it got me thinking and I was talking to my two other full-time colleagues at KSU. I'm like, you know, I'm not comfortable 
having rehearsals. I'm not comfortable being around super spreader trumpet players and saxophone players. And if we have to air out the room every 30 minutes, we don't have enough we don't have enough time to rehearse. I said, why don't we have them do what we've been doing this whole summer and create inexpensive home recording studios? And so all the students did that. And all of our content is being delivered digitally uh, and it's all being done from their bedrooms. So I send out a click of all the charts and the rhythm station runs their charts down and the lead players put their parts down and then the other players do. And then I bring it back, put it all into logic, cut, chop, mix, and send it to the school. That's cool. I've been doing a, I'm doing a, a much sc a scaled down version of that with my students, just trying to, you know, do you, do you, and obviously these are much higher level at, your, at, K at KSU, but like, you just, do you just tell them you just have a click track and then you, and they record it and then you edit it from the whole, do they send you a whole file or do they send you little snippets? The whole file. Uh, and it's a, uh, it's click with, with uh, verbal cues, you know, like here's letter A, here's letter B, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and it, it has definitely been a, a learning process. I mean, what, what seems so obvious now, two months ago, didn't seem obvious to me. So I've really been going, and the students are teaching me a great deal because they know this stuff inside and out. Um, just, you know, not only learning how to use logic and, and, and use all the functions of that, but just the process of how am I going to record 19 kids and get it to sync. And the first one was so labor intensive. And the second one just went off without a hitch because I said, okay, let's, let's make a the, you know, the rhythm stations do on this day, leads are due on this day, and, and so on. And it just made things so much smoother and so much easier and gave me more time to actually work on the tone of the recording and, and the mm -hmm. mixing and everything. That's great. Um, and the kids are back. And I, I literally, as I before we had this, I had a lesson with my four o'clock student who's junior recital. He just did an album on Logic of, of Crusaders arrangements and Joshua Redman arrangements. And he did the same thing that we did for Big Band, he did for his recital. That's great. Uh, and then Pass it on our YouTube music channel. Yeah, and I think that could, it could be, a, it could, as you said, like a silver lining. Like, it's just making us rethink our teaching methods. I mean, for me, again, it's different teaching kids, like little kids, but like, um, you know, the, the, these we can overcome these obstacles and actually learn some new teaching techniques just from from this period. You know, and it, certainly it is a, it's a tough in the moment trying to make it work, but but uh, it's pretty. I mean, I think we'll definitely use these techniques even when students are back. But they're not back at, at KSU now. They're not in the they're not in the classrooms. Right. Are in the classrooms. They are. Uh, this, this, yeah, this was kind of a, a weird scene. They really wanted to emulate a twenty-five seventy-five modality, which was twenty-five percent uh, distance learning and seventy-five percent on campus. Well, that works for an English class where you can all wear a mask and a face shield, but not when you're blowing a horn, not when you're singing. And so I just, uh, I got. We have nine on the jazz faculty, and we just all got together on a Zoom call. I'm like, listen, I'm not comfortable with this, you know. Uh, my wife has bronchitis. She's susceptible to bronchitis. I don't want to be bringing stuff home. Um, and so we just all decided as a jazz faculty that this is what we're going to do. And I wrote a four page treaty and handed it to the dean. And the dean's like, fine. You know, he goes, all I'm interested in is you get content. If you can get content out this way, then you go nuts. Um, and, and again, I, you know, the first thing I said in the, in the paper that I wrote is like, this isn't going to go away. You know, home recording is not a fix for while we're at home in quarantine from COVID, it's going to be the way we deliver content from now on. There's just gonna be a whole lot more of it because it, number one, it's convenient. Number two, it's safe. And number three, it's you reach a huge target audience if you just throw it up on YouTube. Why exactly. wouldn't you do that? Well, that's the perfect way to sell is you have this, this amazing product that you're putting out, you know, just by the, in your classes, you're always recording. So that's it's just such a great thing to do. And it empowers and, the and kids, you know, and empowers the students.
KSU look good, you know, because here's, you know, here's KSU on the, you know, front edge of trying to stay on the front edge of, of you know, maintaining a relevant footprint on the music scene. Uh, you know, we just, we're not just going to shut down and put up the walls and just wait for this thing to pass, which we hope it will very soon. But regardless, these are skills that these kids are going to use to carry forward, regardless of if they're playing live or not, which of course we hope they are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I know my, you know, my students love it. They just love the idea they can make music no matter how they do it at what level they're at they can at home produce music and produce you know it's just it's an empowering thing so yeah. that's awesome um I wanna, i'm curious so i'm as much as a player as, as a teacher um you're kind of held the same high regard um so you taught at georgia state and then you took over the, you, you took the position at ksu how long ago was that uh so i started i'll, I'll give you the, the full timeline i started at georgia state in 1991 um, I taught there up until 2000. Uh, I was just adjunct saxophone and, and I started off as a combo teacher and then it was adjunct saxophone. Um, and during that time, I was also adjunct at Tech, uh, University of Georgia for two years as an artist in residence and then a visiting professor at Furman for a year while Matt Olson was getting his doctorate. Um, so I just filled in for him while he went and did that. And then also at KSU, I started at KSU in 2000 um, as adjunct. And I went on full time in 2004. Uh, and my charge there was to create a jazz program. There was nothing but a community band at the time. Uh, and I said, that's fine. I said, I'm more than happy to have a, have a jazz program and, and work hard to create it, but it cannot be a community. There's not going to be a community component. It's going to be all students because before it was just a disaster. It was just a good old boy drinking club. They'd come in, drink beer and schlock through some tunes. And there's a place for that. But not on a college campus in my opinion. Yeah, sure. And, uh, so that's that's what we did. And and I was given the green light to, you know, to hire my faculty. And, and eventually those, you know, three of those, myself included, got, you know, put in full time uh, and ranked out. We're all ranked out now. And then I've got six uh, adjuncts uh, and three full time. And it's uh, it's been great. We're up to three big bands and uh, eight combos, two jazz guitar ensembles, a vocal jazz lab. So, um I mean, yeah, it's incredible. In the midst of COVID, we're up fifteen percent in enrollment in School of Music, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a the reputation is. I mean, when I first moved to Atlanta or first moved to Georgia, it was just this stellar reputation, and it's just and it, and just hearing the students who come out of there is always super impressive, and certainly the faculty. My God, you know, you guys are great. I mean, I, I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> I want to come and and audit classes or something like that. You know great place to be. And, 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 you know, I live in Buford and I teach in Kennesaw so that, you know, that, sh- you know, should show you how much I love going to work because it's a long haul, but oh, yeah. uh, it's, and the kids are just amazing. I mean, it's, you know, I've got such a great faculty uh, and we support each other. We each have our own thing that we do that the others don't do. And then of course we have lots that we cross pollinate on, but um, it's just a real diverse, solid, um, great group of, of faculty and all but one, went to Georgia state at some point. So, <laughs> you know, we all did that for a minute, but, uh, yeah. it's, it's great. And it's, uh, it's all undergraduate, which is even more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And I know yeah, I was, well, I was talking to, talk to Tyrone once about it, about teaching there. He, he's a far commute too. He was saying how much he was happy. To, he was happy to get it. Yeah. I think he had gotten from- a higher position or he had moved up and he'd become full time or something like that. But he was saying, you know, the commute's yeah. brutal, but it's worth it just to be there. Cause he was, you know, enjoyed it so much. Is and the kids just adore him. I mean, he's just he has 
such a unique thing to offer being from New Orleans and, and, and his, you know, all of his background and his stories and the people that he played with and studying with Ellis and all this kind of stuff. And it's just great that, that we have these, you know, so many different ways to, to contribute to our students' lives through our experiences. I mean, like Trey Wright, you know, his undergraduate degree is not even in music, it's in business and he's masters in music and he, you know, handled a band for so many years up in Athens. And so he's got that experience on how to keep a band working. And, um, you know, Wes comes in with such great uh, compositional skills and arranging skills. And, and it's just, it's really an exciting faculty. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I have a couple questions about just about, I guess, just general questions that I would ask a saxophonist, but like, who do you, who do you, who's your, who your ultimate saxophone, but who's your list of like maybe top five favorite saxophonists just out in the world? Gosh, I, I really try to stay away from hyperbole and saying best. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody has great to offer. Um, but I would be remiss, and I think anybody that has ever heard me play would know that I'm probably a fairly big Michael Brecker devotee. Um, I mean, that was, you know, coming up in the 80s, that's just who you listen to. Sure. Um, it, it, that would be the norm. The exception would be not listening to you know, the fusion players like Brecker and, and, and Wayne and you know, the weather report was still kicking it pretty good. Um, so Brecker, and then I went backwards and I went back to Dexter. Um, and like I said, Dexter and Wardell, um, a lot of Stitt. Uh, my first excellent teacher was a, uh, just a carbon copy of Sonny Stitt. It was ridiculous. Really? Um, yeah. Listened to a lot of Stitt and then, um, uh, had the, you know, the, fortunate to, to meet Chris Potter when I was very young. He was 13. I was 15. We were well, I was going to uh, ask you about camp. that. Yeah. Cause I know you have, it was, you're about, about the same age. Yeah. And, and, and I heard someone told me that you had this interactions in high school yeah. and stuff like that. Summers at the university of South Carolina music camp, which is still going on. My, my children have actually gone to it as well. Um, and then at Georgia state, we would do a tour every odd year. Um, so I entered Georgia State in 1986. So in 1987, that was going to be our European tour. And we were short some saxophone players. And so um, head of jazz studies, uh, Robert Moore, said, well, who should we get? I mean, I'm thinking about maybe asking Chris Potter. And I'm like, that would be so cool. Uh, and so they called him and his parents said, sure, let him go. And so <laughs> here's Chris Potter on, you know, playing with the Georgia State Jazz Ensemble in 1987 and all through Europe. And so... I just got to watch just this phenomenal talent just bloom. And it was, what's crazy is at the time, he just wanted to be the next Lennon and McCartney. He was writing pop really? songs and playing. Interesting. Wasn't sure he wanted to play the saxophone. Um, so he's he's an inspiration in so many ways because nobody plays like him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just, you, you instantly know it's Chris Potter. He's constantly improving. He's constantly getting better. He's constantly honing his craft. And it was the same way with Brecker. You know, it was just like, to the day he died, he was working on, you know, microtone jazz. You know, uh, I overheard Randy talking to somebody and he said, yeah, um, yeah, Michael's working on this this 24 step way of playing the saxophone. He goes, and I'm like, what are you doing this for? And he goes, and then he played it for me. And he's like, OK, I get it. You know, just, I just thought that's so inspiring that, you know, you listen to him when he was, you know, a kid playing with Horace and then you go all the way to the very end. And it's just like a a complete history of the saxophone in one human being. I know, you know? I know. No, it's true. I, I was. I heard Randy speak down at Georgia State when he was here, and it was the same thing. It was talking talk about these notebooks that are. I mean, it would be great to have that out in the world somewhere to see the notebooks of his thought process and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, is that something you do? Do you how, how what your process in terms of learning? You seem like a, a person who's a kind of a 
someone who figures something, figures things out and really kind of delves deeply into things, obviously. So like, how do you, what's your process of learning or what can you share something that's um, how you approach a new piece of music or a new technique? Do you keep a journal? Do you, how do you, how do you do things on your own? I wish I could say that I did. I don't, I used to keep a, a journal of transcriptions. I still have that in my office. Um, I learn everything is unless it's, you know, like a piece of classical literature, but in terms of tunes and everything like that, I try to learn everything by ear. So, because I don't have perfect pitch, I have extremely good relative pitch, and I'm still working on hearing colors to kind of improve uh, having perfect pitch. That's something that I'm always striving for. But uh, I do so much better just by listening. Um, I do have a photographic memory that doesn't hurt. Um, and so by being able to, to do that, then all I'm worried about is relationship from pitch to pitch. So if I need to transpose or if I need to whatever, I can do it that way. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of if a tune was conceived with lyrics, you got to learn the lyrics because mm -hmm. that has saved my tail on many a ba ballad and bossa nova bridge where all of a sudden you can superimpose five Jobim bridges on one another. Um, the lyrics. Uh, really helps out. And that's something I really stress with my students as well. You know, if they can't sing it to me, you don't know it yet, you know, because the tune was conceived. It wasn't written to be a jazz tune. It just happens to be a great jazz tune if you want it to be. It was written to be sung in a musical. So, you know, using that, you know, knowledge, uh, you, you only know the tune fully if you have the lyrics as well. And like I said, it's just a, it, it gives me insight into how I would approach playing the tune. Like until I learned the lyrics to In Your Own Sweet Way, I had an entirely different mode of approaching that tune. And when you read the lyrics to it, you're like, this tune is dark. It's really funny. Dark. I, was, I was playing that. I was actually working on that recently. And I don't know the lyrics. I should know them. Yeah. You know, so Dave wrote all the music and his wife, Iola, wrote all the lyrics. Really? And In Your Own Sweet is basically a love letter from them to Paul Desmond. And Paul Desmond was a dark dude. Well, I've heard he stories. Hilarious. Yeah super dark and so um in your own sweet way is about paul desmond and it's not sunshine and roses it's it's huh. quite a, a heavy read that is um, that is very interesting yeah so um, that's uh that's really you know when you gosh i was oh, i was working with uh the marching band of all things uh, on you know just type teaching a, a basic swing concept because they were doing moon dance and i'm like you know does anybody know the lyrics of the song nobody raised their hand i'm like well until you know what the song's about. I mean, once you realize what the song's about, how could you not swing it, you know? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, so. brilliant. That's really, that's fascinating. Um, that, um, that attention, yeah, the attention to detail and stuff like that. So it's just a, such an important part. And that's a, a theme with all the people I've interviewed, not surprisingly. It's just that kind of, yeah. those kind of details is what kind of separates someone who's good from someone who's exceptional. Um, I'm curious, this is a real nerdy thing, but like when you approach, when you approach um, improvising and stuff like that, are you thinking modes and things like, are you thinking about Dorian scales? Do you know all yours? I'm just curious, because no. I, I, I don't know, I have my own ideas about this, but like, I'm just curious what your process is in terms of improv, improvising. Um, I, like I said, my, my first teacher that really taught me improvisation was uh, shoot first and ask questions later. I mean, he could not, if I said, what scale do you use over a C7 sharp nine? He could not say the altered scale, but he knew what sounded right. Mm -hmm. So the, the way I learned is I learned backwards, probably from a lot of people. Um, just, I learned what sounded right and, and just emulated licks and, you know, memorized the Omnibook and all that kind of stuff and really tried to get as much vocabulary under my fingers as possible. And then on the other side of things, okay, 
if a student asks me what to play across a sharp nine chord, I need to be able to tell them what scale that is and where it came from. Um, so I do know that now, but that was not the way I approached improvisation. I approached it from a very um, uh, kind of some of my influences approach. So I wanted to, if I was listening to Dexter, then I was going to sound like Dexter until I melded somebody else into me. So, you know, the, the it's just my way of, of, of monitoring someone's progress, especially my student is I can, if I can tell who they're listening to at the time, then they're doing it right. Mm -hmm. If I can hear those influences and then the year later, those influences meld with the next influence. And then that becomes, you know, cause there's nothing really new that we're going to be yeah. able to do as an improviser. Um, so it's just a matter of how we assimilate our influences and create something that hasn't been, you know, a sound that hasn't been done, but using tools that have always been there. Um, so, I mean, I, I've been, and that was just more of a, you know, I wanted to play so badly like my first, my, my first jazz teacher that I would just do any, I recorded every lesson and just copied every solo. And I would just do that with, with uh, everything else. I'm a, I'm a big fan of transcribing. I know there's certain teachers that just don't want to do it. I'm a big fan of doing things in 12 keys because I don't want to be limited technique wise in one key. I don't want to have a B flat lick and an F lick and, mm -hmm. And, you know, the old joke, I, I can't improvise on that tune because my lick doesn't fit it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I really want to, you know, not be limited to, by technique. That was one of the most fascinating things I watched Chris Potter do in a master class at Georgia State years and years ago. He goes, I just, you know, like I said, I don't want to be limited in what I can and can't do. So I might just pick a pick an exercise for myself. I'm going to play giant steps and the lowest note I'm going to play on the saxophone is a high C. And he went through and played like eight choruses of Ooh. the most incredible rendition of giant steps with nothing below a high C. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and now, but that's, that's the dedication that he has. And, and what's scary is that when I met him when he was 13, he sounded just like that. You know, really? he had technique all over the horn and he wrote a tune at waltz for us to play with the, with the jazz ensemble at USC. And uh, it was in the key of E. So here he is just blasting over the saxophone in the key C sharp major, just going nuts. And it was just like such an inspiration. You know, I, I've always tried to keep that in perspective that no matter how good you think you are, no matter how old you are in life and how you deserve to be at a certain spot, there's some 12 year old in Uganda that can wipe you under the carpet and you should embrace that and learn everything you can from it. And that's really difficult to teach, you know, young kids with egos or a young me with an ego that, you know, so well, why aren't I that, you know, how can he possibly be that good? And as soon as you let that go, then you can absorb it. Sure. You know, and and you it's the only it way you can progress too. I think about like, when you get, you know, how do you continue on this path? It's not like this is huge, like a gigantic financial reward or something like that. You need to have that kind of intrinsic humbleness in order to actually keep going and keep learning those new things. So there's not some kind of external reward. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I find that really, really fascinating. Um, yeah. One of my goals is to be better tomorrow than I am today sure. in some capacity uh, as a father, husband, friend, saxophone player, flute player, whatever. Um, and also know that there's more that I don't know than I ever will know. Um, and, and just try to learn something new. My, my, what I tell my students all the time, because I know just a bunch of random junk that nobody should know and doesn't do me a bit of good. Uh, but I always say, they're like, why do you know that? I'm like, there's nothing not worth knowing. Sure. <laughs> you know? Regardless of what it is, Zen and the art of motorcycle repair. You know, if if, if it's on the internet, go look it up. Yeah, so. no, that's well put. That's well put. And it seems like yeah, I, I was I'm curious, kind of wrapping it up. Like, um, I mean, you obviously yeah, you balance all these things. You have you know 
successful children you have a great life how do you balance all these these aspects of um of life and work and creation and, and playing music i mean do you find that difficult or is that something that just kind of comes easily to it you it is very difficult and it's not I, I wouldn't consider it a balance it's something that ebbs and flows mm -hmm. i think that um you know depending on you know now with covid i don't have the luxury but before covid hit i had a stack of things that that were coming up that I had to prepare for, be it, you know, the next show at City Springs or, you know, getting ready for the, the semester to start at the university. So I had a nice little list of things that I could just move from project to project to project. Well, when all that came to a screeching halt, um, then I was kind of left with, what am I going to do? I mean, I've got, so I'm constantly kind of shifting priorities to what needs to be addressed at the moment. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not able to see my children as much, uh, two of which are at the University of Georgia. And my youngest is uh, I mean, I just we, we don't know who she's been around, who she hasn't been around. So it's hard to judge, you know, if she's carrying the virus or not. I don't think she is. But it's something we have to be really safe about mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. Same here. I mean, I am going out from time to time. I'm going to do my office at school. I'm not seeing anybody. But I mean, I can only guarantee myself as to what situations I've put myself in. And, you know, my youngest is in school with all of her classmates and mm -hmm. has had to quarantine for two weeks because they were exposed to somebody. And it's just a scary thing. So, you know, that's that's heartbreaking for me. I just, uh, you know, obviously we can talk FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, but it's yeah. it's still different. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't really call it a balance. It's just kind of up and down and up and down. And at sure. this point, I'm focusing on, you know, band instrument repair or I've got, I've got a few days I can get some horns knocked out or over here I'm focusing on, you know, practicing my instruments. Uh, I yeah. wish I could say I had strict daily routine, but, but I don't. Uh, it's just, um, I, I tend to do better when I've got something looming ahead of me that I have to get prepared for. I just buckle down and do it. Sure. And that, that, that's, I mean, the fact that you brought up the instrument repair thing is just shows you the many facets of your career. <laughs> Cause like I didn't, I didn't even mention that. And that's, that's like a whole, that would be a lifetime's work and you know, as well, just being becoming great at that too. Um, my, my dad was a mechanic, and so it was always, you know, if something's wrong with your car, you fix it. You know, and yeah. So uh, same with the saxophone. If something's wrong with the saxophone, I just took it apart and figured out how to, you know, how it all worked. And then I apprenticed under a, a gentleman for a little while, and and it's just something I've always been fascinated with and interested in. So yeah. So what's um so what's next what's next for you what's what's the next big project on the horizon if you can kind of see beyond this period of I mean I guess it, it could be something that's Obviously, you've been working so much on recording; it could be happening right now. But what's what's the next big project in your life? Uh, well, I've been doing a project with Ted Howe, well, for Ted Howe. Ted was a um, a huge fixture in Atlanta for many, many years. He used to teach at Berkeley, and he's probably the last person that is familiar with Herb Pomeroy's line writing concept of of composition. Um, and it's the craziest way to write. I mean, there's so many rules, um, and uh, he's just a uh, a brilliant composer and so we have a friend in common named Trammell Starks and Trammell usually does all of his um, mastering and mixing of his stuff and so Trammell's like well why don't you put out I mean Ted's 80 he goes well, why don't you put out a smooth jazz record let's see what happens with it and Ted goes okay and so like instantly wrote 13 smooth jazz songs um, and so we've just been slowly putting these together but it's incredible I mean he's so well respected in among his peer group that everybody's really kind of latching onto this stuff. And uh, so that's been kind of fun. They're, they're very intense projects because Ted's an intense guy. So it's not going to be a situation where I track something here and send it away. And that's going to be the end of the day. Sure. I'm going to have to do a lot of revisions on it. Um, well, that's, so that's fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> actually. Yeah. That's been fun to work on. And then just, you know, 
getting these kids ready for their next concert and, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, now that the weather's cooler, I can get outside and walk around and walk the dog and try to get some, get some exercise and, and, you know, find excuses to play my horns. Sure, sure, sure. And when, and so people can see, they can look at the, on the YouTube, on the, on the Kennesaw page and see these performances and stuff like that as well. Yeah, we, uh, they, they will be archived. I just, they haven't done it yet. We're, um, I mean, the, the hall is still working nonstop. We've got something there almost every night. Uh, and on top of the stuff that we're broadcasting um, via remote. So, uh, yeah, everything's on their site. And, um, and um, yeah, that's it. Cool. And uh, all the tickets are free. Uh, so if they ever want to hear or watch an event, all they have to do is buy a free ticket and, and you're logged in. That's great. I'll be checking it out for sure. Um... Well, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I was just, I was looking forward to this. And again, we could talk forever. I mean, there's so many aspects, even that we haven't even touched on, but I thank so much for your time. My pleasure. I'm so honored that you thought of me and, uh, and let's, let's talk some more. We can yeah, sure. That, yeah, I would love that. But yeah, I hope, and I hope to see you, you know, see you in person soon. If, if all that would be- things get better. <laughs> Well, good luck with you and your school and, and everything. And uh, I certainly look forward to hearing you play because I am a big fan of the way you play. So, Well, like right back at you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Sam. Thanks again. Great night. You too. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of the Atlanta Jazz Notes Podcast with the incredible Sam Skelton. The music you heard at the beginning of the episode is Sam's solo on a recording called Canon by the great pianist Randy Hexter. Also in this episode, you heard Sam soloing live on the tune Asia by Steely Dan at the Vista Room in 2018. Please be sure to check out the website at atljazznotes.com and videos of all the podcasts on our YouTube channel. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five-star reviews and written reviews are the best way for us to reach new listeners on various podcast platforms, so please leave those reviews. Thanks.